Good morning. Have a seat. Have a seat. Have a seat. All right, so... All right, thank you for listening to me. You don't have to, but you do. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews. If you're new, my name's Obed. I'm one of the leaders here. And um, as a church, we exist to be a church family on mission with Jesus. That is our purpose. That is why we exist. And currently, we have been in um, studying the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a unique book that is found in the, Old Test- in the New Testament, Old Testament. I mean, it feels like the Old Testament, actually. Um, and it's got some incredible things in it, but the big overarching theme over the book of Hebrews is that it's mainly about the fact that Jesus is better. And so this morning, we're going to explore that even more. Um, you think of Jesus as being better as a simple statement, um, but you'll be surprised um, how this book just really just unearths it and develops it um, throughout the book. And so turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This week, we will be studying verses 5 through 18. And so Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 18, I am going to lead us in the reading of God's word. And as I do, may you please stand in honor of God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 onwards reads, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the world, or for the, of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow. Here we go. We need prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray as a result of our study this morning that you would cause all of us to develop an even greater appetite for your word. But most of all, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would grow to love and appreciate Jesus more. In his name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Last week, if you was with us um, in Hebrews, um, what happened was we were warned about the certainty of drifting away from Jesus Christ if we are not anchored and stabilized in him. The week before last week, we did a brief study of angels. And we concluded that although angels are extraordinary creatures, and God uses them, is using them to do extraordinary things, they pale in comparison to Jesus Christ. Jesus, being the Son of God, is superior to even angels. In our passage for this morning, the author of Hebrews briefly revisits the subject of angels. And this time, what he does is that he compares angels to human beings. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. What is this verse talking about? And to understand it, you've got to understand that Jews in the ancient world believed that angels had been given positions of authority over nations. If you read the book of Daniel and throughout scripture, there are parts where it talks about angels being given kind of dominion over certain sections of the world. However, in the verse we just read in verse 5, the author of Hebrews does this. He corrects that view, okay, right? Claiming that angels have not been given dominion over the world to come. Now, the term world to come, what is it talking about? It's a unique word, or, or, or sorry, term in the New Testament. It sounds like it means heaven, but this was not the author's intent. Trempa Longman, who's a 
well-respected theologian has this to say about the world to come. He says, he, the author of Hebrews, uses this unusual expression to mean this world as God intended it to be, as it is... Did it, what just happened? Oh, it's fine. Okay. It's, <laughs> I was like, what is that? I'm talking about angels and stuff, you know. Strength along, man, says this. He uses this unusual expression to mean this world as God intended it to be and as it has now become through the salvation Christ has brought. So what we learn from this is that God has never grant, granted angels dominion over the world. However, he has granted mankind with this kind of authority. How do we know this? Watch the clarity here. Let's read verse 5 again, but let's focus on the two following verses, verse 6 and 7, okay? So it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, verse 6 and 7. Listen here. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. Verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And let's read the first part of verse 8. It reads, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, those verses, verse 6, 7, first part of verse 8, should sound familiar to you. And the reason why is it's from the Old Testament. It's actually a psalm. And as I've said previously, in the book of Hebrews, the author quotes a ton of Old Testament. And this is one of them. Okay? Um, these are verse 6, 7, beginning of 8, are quotes from Psalm 8, okay, and Psalm 110. Let's go to Psalm 8 and actually read it to understand, because this is important for our study. So if you have your Bible, okay, turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can share with someone, or you can download it on the App Store. Sure you can. Psalm 8 reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with, the, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Did you see it? Did you see it? Right? What we saw in Hebrews 6, 7 is here in Psalm 8. And what's going on in Psalm 8 is that the psalmist is just praising God for how majestic he is. And then he just stops and goes, wait a minute. Right? What is man 
that you are so mindful of him. Okay? Um, in other words, God makes and keeps the whole universe running, yet he still has time for humans and faithfully cares for us. Even though God made us a little lower than the angels, we have been crowned with glory and honor and everything has been put in subjection under our feet. And so to summarize, God made us, he loves us, and gave us dominion over the things he has made, a privilege angels do not have. If you go to the book of Genesis, the beginnings of Genesis, talks about God making humans right? And giving them dominion over creation. That's what verses 6, 7, 8, which are direct quotes from Psalm 8, are all about. However, and this is a big however, what we must understand about Psalm 8 is that it's not mainly about us. Humans. Someone else is in the focus. In fact, Psalm 8 is actually about Jesus Christ himself. It's one of numerous messianic psalms found in the Old Testament. And if you're like, what's a messianic psalm? A messianic psalm is a psalm that spoke about Jesus Christ way before he was born. And so Psalm 8 is not only a celebration of human significance in the universe, it's also ultimately a messianic psalm that found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And this is all clarified by the writer of Hebrews in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, But we see him for a while who was made lower than the angels... Namely, who? Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the Son of Man, embodying everything the psalm celebrates about man. George Guthrie says this, the Christological interpretation of Psalm 8 affirms Christ's identification with humanity, or perhaps his, whole, um, his role as representative of humanity, but the focus is on his experience, and position, not ours. This remarkable passage and so many others in the Bible drives home a truth we often overlook. And that truth is this. Jesus was a real human being just like us. Whenever we discuss Jesus being human, oftentimes the word incarnation is used. The word incarnation is a theological word that is used to describe the embodiment of God the Son in human flesh as Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus was a real human being, just like us, is a truth we don't often talk about. We seem to have more conversations and debates 
about the fact that Jesus was God. Okay, the idea of Jesus' divinity, the idea that Jesus is God, is the center or the focus of so many debates. And uh, this is understandable because there's not much need to defend the humanity of Jesus today. Most people, whether they're atheists or agnostics or do not identify with any religion, most of them, not all of them, most of them agree that Jesus was a real human being from a historic and real town named Nazareth. Michael Kruger says this, if you have a disagreement with your non-Christian friend about the person of Jesus, it's probably about whether he was really divine, not whether he was really human. If you remember, if you've been with us in Hebrews or you read the book of Hebrews, the first chapter emphasized the divinity of Jesus. The first chapter was all about Jesus being God. This section focuses on the notion that Jesus was also a real human being just like us. George Godfrey says there's a passage crafted specifically to move from the son's heavenly position to his earthly ministry. The idea that God became human is, the, is of great importance. And one author called it the heart of the Christian faith. And so what I'm saying is that Jesus' humanity is as important as his divinity. And so in the verses that follow, and we're going to kind of zero in and um, do a study of it, we'll not only hear about Jesus' humanity, but we'll also see why Jesus' humanity matters as much as his divinity. Put simply, we'll look, at why the, we'll look at why the fact that Jesus was a real person is just as important as him being God. And so if you're making notes, here we go. Jesus became human to first save us from sin. Jesus became human to save us from sin. Um, look at verse 9 again. But we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What is this saying? For a little while, Jesus was made lower than angels. Put differently, for a little while, Jesus became human just like you and I. Jesus, this verse tells us, was also crowned with glory and honor, not just because he's the son of God, making him the sovereign ruler of the universe, but because of the suffering of death. And Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, Jesus died so that by God's grace, we don't have to die. But if we believe in him and trust in him, we will attain forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We are sinners who deserve nothing but death. Death as in separation from God, and yet in Christ we have been given eternal life. Why? Because he died in our place. Jesus on the cross absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved. 
verses 16 and 17 also makes this point. Um, talks about the same idea of Jesus being um, um, the one who died for our sins. Jesus became human to save us from sin. Bruce Ware has this awesome quote that summarizes everything. He says, The greatest miracle ever done in all of history is the joining together of God and man. And this was not done for show or to prove some point. It was done because this was the only way that our loving and holy God would be able to save us from our sin. If you're making notes, Jesus became human first to save us from our sin. Next, Jesus became human to destroy the devil and deliver us. Destroy the devil and deliver us. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. First of all, Jesus became human so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And the one who has the power of death is who? The devil. The devil, let's talk about the devil for a while, shall we? The devil in Greek means the slanderer. Um, is also, he's also known as the Satan or tempter and the evil one. The Maquis of the Bible Project describes the devil as, being, as a being who, is, who isn't for anything. Rather, he's anti-everything, working through lies to drag us back into darkness and disorder. Some people in our society do not believe the devil exists. They think the devil is a character that... Hollywood or someone made up or it's, he's a legend or something like that. They don't believe that a devil actually exists. But Christians believe the devil is a real being. But the interesting thing about this, we struggle to know what to do with the devil. Let me have Albert Moeller explain this for us. He says this, we should not blame the devil for every sin or envision him in every closet and lurking behind every corner. At the same time, we certainly shouldn't, should not trivialize the devil and turn him into nothing more than a cartoon character. So what he's basically saying is that we shouldn't be overly obsessed with the devil. And some people, I grew up in a kind of a culture that's very obsessed with the devil. Everything that happened is the devil. It's the devil. Let's blame the devil, right? And I'm sure some of you guys can relate. But there are some people that trivialize the devil and turn him into nothing more than a cartoon character, meaning they don't take the devil seriously. They're very much like, ah, he doesn't exist but we as Christians shouldn't obsess over the devil, but we should also take him seriously. 
The devil is God's chief enemy and therefore our chief enemy. This doesn't mean that God and the devil are in a cosmic power struggle between two equals. What we know is that God's power far exceeds the devil's power, says Albert Moeller. Uh, this was interesting. I read this and it was really interesting. Donald Gray Bounhouse once asked this compelling question. And this is a question. And I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about it after I've asked it. He said, this is a question. What would a city look like if it was completely ruled by the devil? In your opinion, just think about it. Don't say it out loud. What would a city look like if it was ruled completely by the devil? Most of you are probably thinking or imagining Las Vegas. I think Vegas is fine. I like it. It's lots of, en it's lots of entertainment. But most of you are thinking of Vegas. All right, Vegas. Or if you're really biblical, you're thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you're thinking of a city that crime is high, um, people, um, it's just havoc everywhere, chaotic everywhere. Barnhouse responded and said, a city ruled by the devil will look something we never would have imagined. And he goes on to say, a city ruled completely by Satan will look like this. Every lawn would be mowed perfectly to perfection. Every wall or bridge will be without graffiti. No one will break the speed limit. Children will obey their parents all the time. Every resident will have a successful marriage. Every church will have the most beautiful facilities. In other words, He's arguing and saying that if Satan completely ruled a city, the city would have an appearance of moralism and perfection. And then he says, this same city which appears to be perfect will mean that the gospel will not be preached at any place or from any pulpit because the devil's primary goal is to prevent the gospel from being preached. The devil's aim is to keep people from hearing and believing the gospel. If you are here this morning and you have heard but have not yet believed the gospel, maybe the reason why you haven't believed is because you are being prevented to do so by the devil. And he does it in so many different ways. The devil will use moralism and appearance of perfection to accomplish his prevention of the gospel from advancing. 
The devil is God's chief enemy, and therefore our chief enemy, and he possesses the power of death. And listen to me clearly. Listen to me on this one, okay? This doesn't mean that the devil has like ultimate control, right? And it's like God v. the devil. What we remember, I reminded you, like God's power far exceeds the devil, absolutely does. And so when it talks about the devil being the one who has the power of death, it doesn't mean he has ultimate control and power over death. We know the ultimate power over death belongs to who? Belongs to God. What it does mean for the devil to possess power over death is that he influences the thing that causes death. And the thing that causes death is sin. Look at verse 14, verse 15, verse 14 and 15 again. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I've got a question for you. What's your greatest fear in life? What's your greatest fear? The other day I was studying this verse with a couple of guys and we explored this question together. Um, And I said, my greatest fear is to be blind. Gosh, that's scary. My other greatest fear is to lose my wife, my kids, And so what's your greatest fear? It's highly likely that most of you fear death. You might not fear your own death, but you fear death because it could happen to someone you love. Or you may fear death because of the fear of pain or the separation from loved ones, as I said, or you Fear death because of the death of um, the fear of everlasting punishment. We're all part of an ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten people die. (laughs) And with no escape from this fate, we understandably have a fear of dying. American filmmaker Woody Allen summed up humanity's uneasiness with death when he said, it's not that I am afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) We all live with a fear of death. Our lives are like the unfolding of a murder mystery in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim says best-selling author Mike Mason. And yet, and yet, we're being reminded in verse 15 that because of Jesus' death, he has defeated the devil and done what? And delivered all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
In other words, Jesus became a man to die for the sins of the people, and through his death and resurrection, he has destroyed the one who had power over death, the devil, and as a result, he has delivered us all who profess his name as Lord and Savior. He has delivered us all from the fear of death. This means if you are a Christian, death is no longer, should no longer be a threat to you because Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of death. We will all die physically, but death doesn't master us because we will live again in Christ. Tim Keller says this, if Jesus died so you don't have to pay for anything in your past and he has risen to be your um, loving, not living, loving savior, then what can death do to you? Jesus' death and resurrection has created a new reality for everyone who believes in him. We're no longer slaves to the fear of death because with his death comes new life and eternal life. John Owen, who is an ancient scholar who wrote some in incredible but intense books. If you've ever read a John Owen book, his sentences, like you just start a sentence and they just go and go and go. Some really good stuff. He's wrote a lot of books. He was really prolific. But one of my favorite books he wrote, not just for the content, but for the title, has to be one of the most awesome titles in a book. That title is this. It's the death of death in the death of Christ. Go on Amazon. <laughs> Buy it for the title, but mostly for the content. So my question to you is this. Listen carefully. What would it look like for you to live each day as someone who has been freed from the fear of death? Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you should not fear death. And so in light of this, I wonder how this truth will change the way you live. And so we've seen that Jesus became human to save us from us and destroy the devil and deliver, and deliver us. And thirdly, if you're making it, Jesus became human to call us brothers and sisters. Um, look at verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom, all things exist in bringing many sons to glory would make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Um, this is a remarkable summary of the gospel. Okay, if you're like, give me a summary of the gospel. So many places in scripture. But I think um, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 is a remarkable summary of the gospel. Jesus achieved many things in his humanity. He did. He became human in order to save sinful humanity through his perfect life, devastating suffering, atoning death and victorious resurrection. But Jesus' humanity, his death and resurrection came to provide more for us. He came to adopt us as brothers and sisters. In other words, through Jesus, we have been adopted into the family of God. 
And so look around you and say hello to your brothers and sisters. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus and everyone he sanctifies is, have the same father. Okay? Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And verse 17 and 13 um, kind of breaks this down and unpacks this a bit more. Uh, and so what is this telling us as a result of accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you have accepted Christians, um, you have been adopted into God's family. And so we've seen that Jesus became human Save us from our sin, destroy the devil, and deliver us, and call us brothers and sisters. Lastly, Jesus became human so that he could understand us. Look at verse 18. It reads, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What is he saying? Since Jesus became a real human being, he experienced the life humans live. But Jesus went through suffering so that he can help those who are being tempted. Put simply, Jesus experienced everything we have and continue to experience. When you think about the many hardships, right, of, of human life, and you read the Gospels or the letters about Jesus, what you'll find is that Jesus experienced them, okay? Jesus was tempted. Jesus was sorrowful. He was angry. He was rejected by his family. He was falsely accused and betrayed by a friend. He even cried in desperation to God and wept at a funeral. Jesus lived a real human life and joined us in the muck and mire of a broken world. He has been where you are. He has felt the pain and frustration of living in a sin tainted world. And so when you struggle with life in this fallen world, there's no way we can say, Jesus, you don't understand. Because he does. Jesus understands what it's like to suffer because he came as a man who suffered. Um, Cynthia Hopkins says this, being made like us doesn't mean that Jesus lived through every situation we encounter, but it does mean he experienced what it is like to live in a broken world where things are not as they should be. And so let me ask you a question. How, um, what are you going through? What challenges and difficulties are you currently facing? What temptations 
are you wrestling with? And what painful experiences, whether physical or emotion, are you experiencing? Recently, I've been wrestling with this temptation to want a better car. Gosh, yesterday I was driving back from my son's soccer match. <sighs> Football match soccer. And I ended up behind a Lamborghini. A white Lamborghini. <laughs> and there were times when I could have like not been behind a Lamborghini, but I was just obsessed with it. I kept following the Lamborghini <laughs> as much as I could. And I was looking in the car, and there was this guy. He looked so cool, shades, driving it. It was a convertible, top-down, sun's blazing, and he's just looking great. And I start to think, man, what if I had that Lamborghini? What if that was me? driving that car, I would gain the attention of so many people and the respect and adoration of many people. Recently, I've been wrestling with this contentment. I really have. I want a better car. I want a bigger house. <laughs> I already have a nice house. Can you really? And I want to be able to buy a house and just be wealthy. Big struggle for me. And so what temptation are you currently wrestling with? What painful experience are you currently having? Emotional, physical? Um, as some of you guys know, we're in the process of getting our green card and we're, we're making good progress in it. But as of yesterday, we encountered just an obstacle, it'll be fine. But a friend of mine who's really famous now, it's like a YouTube star, uh, we asked him for a letter of recommendation, like, you know, a reference, because you need letters of recommendation to support kind of my green card and everything. If you understand immigration visa, you'll understand. It's, hard. it's so complex to go in now. Uh, and he's a friend of mine, he's a friend of mine. And I was like, man, you're so famous. And I think if we got a letter from you, it would strengthen our application. And he got back to us and said, man, you know, I'd love to, but I don't feel comfortable with it. And he kind of listed his reasons. And I was like, oh, I am so disappointed. I thought me and you were, you know, help me. This is a big deal. I felt disappointed. I felt let down, felt disowned. I was feeling the emotions of anger and frustration. Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to need this person and all of that? And so what are you currently experiencing? And as I was thinking through my temptation with wanting better things and uh, um, 
emotional turmoil of having to be disappointed and everything. Um, I, I, and as I studied this, chap, this chapter and this verse, I was comforted by the fact that Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, understands. He's been tempted. He has gone through emotional, psychological, and physical pain. He really has. And he understands what I'm going through. And he understands what you're going through. He understands the emotions and the pain that you're feeling. He may not have gone through the exact situation, but he understands because he experienced what it's like to live in a broken world. All the fears and anxiety I'm feeling as a result of this lengthy and expensive visa process, he gets it. And so what challenges and difficulties are you facing? Whatever they are, know that whatever you're going through, Jesus understands. He not only understands, but he comes alongside us in our trials and temptations to not just stand there and watch us, but to help us. And so whenever we're tempted, whenever we're struggling, what do we need to do? We need to cry out for help. And when we do, Jesus' ears are tuned to our suffering and temptations, and he is quick to run to our side and bring about comfort and strength. And so this morning, may you listen to me clearly. May you be comforted and strengthened by the fact that when the trial comes in, you're dying, when you are tempted to despair or self-pity or resentment or anger or unbelief, Jesus Christ will come to your rescue. And he will come as someone who is not distant and disconnected and detached from you. He comes as someone who knows what you are going through because he has been through it himself and he also comes with the promise that he'll give you what you need to make it to the end. Because your salvation wasn't started by you. It was started by him. And he is faithful to bring about the completion of it. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author is going to remind us of this. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, which summarizes what we've been talking about. It says, Since then we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. By the way, that's the difference between us and Jesus. He is without sin. Verse 16, let us then do what? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Verse 
And so, King's Cross Church, the next time you find yourself talking about the person of Jesus, don't focus only on his divinity. Speak also with hope and thankfulness about his humility. Because it's only because Jesus is both divine and human. It's only because of that that he can save us from our sin, deliver us from the fear of death, relate to us as brothers and sisters, and understand everything we're going through. Let's pray. No power of death. Nothing, God, can separate us from your love. Thank you for this exploration of Hebrews and the truths in it. I pray as we reflect more on the humanity of Jesus Christ, your Son, we would know more and more of the benefits and more and more of why it matters. In his name we pray. Amen.